Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Crisis in our community, a crisis of abandonment. And what we're trying to do in the work that we're doing is to rebuild the intergenerational connection between the younger, younger black people and older black people. This connection has been decimated in the last 50 years. And without this connection, once again, the house is divided and will collapse. So we're trying to build a house, rebuild the house of black people to make sure that the house is sturdy, to make sure that it does not continue to collapse. And we understand that in order to do this, generations must be talking with each other. Generations must see themselves in each other. And so instead of seeing our young people as thugs and criminals, we must see them as an extension of who we are. And instead of them seeing us as as people who abandon them and bad people, they must see themselves in us. And so this is the work that we're trying to do with this broad base of black women, this delegation of 300 black women, 
we're beginning to try to build that base again, point by point. When the war is won, we will be strong. We will be strong. When we come to it, we, this people, on this minuscule and kissless globe. Why would you turn your most precious resource over to someone who does not love them? War is won. We will be strong. We will be strong. We, this people, on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon, So the question on the table is why do we delude ourselves in believing that racists on Friday could be good teachers on Monday? Why do we believe that just because the school was a good school for a white kid, it was a good school for a black kid in a society where there's racism? Why do we not take good care of our children? Generations of black children have been devastated who are not adults from these public schooling situations where they were dehumanized in class, if they did a good paper, it meant that they had cheated. They never got the kind of rewards or validation that they needed to have. They never were allowed to reach the highest capacity in terms of extracurricular activities. All the leaders were white and all the objects were black and brown. We are dealing with heinous crimes. And our children are profiled, targeted, dehumanized, degraded, killed, and executed. Now, they just don't shoot one time. They shoot sometimes 30. When the war is won, we will be strong. We will be strong. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, his spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it goes down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Nobody respects a people who allow them to abuse their children. The white people have ceased to respect us, and we see evidence of that in our daily lives. We see evidence of that at the Trump rallies when they beat up black children and beat up black people. We hear evidence of that in the media, the way the media talk about black people. The truth of the matter is no one respects the people who don't love their children enough to fight for them. And so we have to begin, and we've got to begin to really look at that. Why have people lost respect for us? What does it mean for people to luxuriate in materialism and lose their children? Why in the world 
will we allow white people to beat our children? When we come to it, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces sooted with scorn are scrubbed clean. One day when the glory comes, it will be out, it will be out. Oh, one day. And now, Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us tonight. Here at Our Common Ground, we ask you, when will we come to it? The war on our children, the war on poor people in this country continues. Counting public benefits not included in the traditional poverty measure, about 15 million people are in deep poverty, with annual incomes below half the poverty line, about $10,000 for a family of three. What is more shocking for us is that at least 4.5 million people with incomes far below that $10,000, an appalling $2 a day. We thank you for coming to us tonight and joining in us in the, at this sanctuary of black truth. Tonight at our common ground, we're going to be meeting with Dr. Ruby Sales. She is coming back to us after the March 18, 2016 public hearings and protests, Hands Off Our Children, 300 Strong, and we are so very pleased uh, to have Dr. Sales join us once again. If you'd like to join us on your listening device called the cell phone, you can call in at 347-838-9852 to listen live here with Dr. Ruby Sales. And if you'd like to join our listeners in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. That number again is 347-838-9852, and we want to welcome you to the Boston Marathon Weekend. No, I am not running in the marathon, but it is a big weekend here at Boston in Boston for the marathon, and uh, everybody is running up on carbs. We want to also remind you that you can check always on our Facebook page to find the most important news items, events, analysis, and commentary at OCG Talk Radio on Facebook. And again, thank you for for, for being with us. Uh, we are going to be talking about following up on a number of things with Dr. Ruby Seals. I've got some stuff I need to talk about. So with, uh, we hope that you have settled in, and we welcome once again Dr. Ruby Seals. Ruby, now Seals, thank you so yes, much for I'm being with us. Yes, I'm in the house. I'm, I'm, I'm lit. Are you lit? I'm lit. I'm always lit when we're talking. 
<laughs> I heard you turned it out at St. Timothy last Sunday. <laughs> yeah, we talked. Yep, that was the black women gathered at St. Timothy, and it was such an honor and such a incredible experience to be with my sisters, ordinary black women, taking care of the business of the community every day. 24-7. It was good well, to be with them. I want to have a love fest at the top of our discussion tonight because I want to tell you, the work that you did, uh, uh, the work that you do, the passion and inspiration and aspiration that you bring to us is is sometimes overwhelming, uh, Dr. Sales. It's just overwhelming. <laughs> You know, sometimes I want to pick up the phone and call you, and I and, and I say to myself, "Nah," because we'll be there for hours. That's right, three hours. <laughs> but but I I I am telling you, as I talk to people about what the Spirit House Project in Atlanta, Georgia, folks did in Washington D.C. As I saw some of the photographs, I was unable to be there because all of you know that I was um, in bed with an illness. But I just got goosebumps from watching what you were doing. And then I was just so very angry that I wasn't able to stream it live somehow uh, from the the, uh, public hearing which was a unique kind of way in which Spirit House and the Hands Off of Our Children Project uh, was able to bring in families whose children had been victims of of state-sanctioned murder and brutality. And I, I was just, I was kind of annoyed by that, but we'll talk about that at another time. Tell us, Ruby, um, give give my audience uh, a picture of how the weekend went because you talked. I wasn't on the air the when you were talking about be, your preparations for going to Washington, but I was certainly listening and excited about what was about to happen. So paint a picture for us of that weekend. Well, that weekend was really an outgrowth of a conversation that began with Reverend Dr. Susan K. Smith and myself. And she expressed a desire to have a gathering of women coming together as they did during the early 20th century for the vote as they marched down, marched in Washington, D.C., and the silent march. And out of that notion grew Stop the War and Our Children. And that was a chosen theme because I believe that we all love our children, and that can be a unifying point that brings black people together despite our common differences. And so we sent out an invitation with the vision of 300 black women gathering in Washington, D.C., the number 300 was the number of 
African Americans in the community of enslaved people that Harriet Tugman brought out of slavery. That was an important number. And so we knew we did not want to do a march. We knew that we did not want to replicate a million man or a million woman march. We wanted to do something that was a little bit different and had a different impact. So we gathered together black women, a delegation of black women from all parts of the United States. They came as from New York City, all the way from Tampa, Florida, all the way from Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and there were 25 mothers with us whose children had been killed by the police in state-sanctioned murders. The first day, we gathered at the Supreme Court, and we announced before the Supreme Court our intentions to challenge the destruction of the Constitution, the 14th and Fourth Amendment rights of African-American children. We also alerted the world in a press conference that black children were being assaulted in public schools, on playgrounds, and on the streets of America. Everywhere black children turn, they are the victims and the targets of systemic assaults that intimidate, violate, humiliate, and destroy their constitutional and human rights. We are dealing with a situation where black children from Los Angeles all the way throughout this country attend public schools that are manned by AK-47s, grenade launch pads, armored vehicles, and other massive weapons of destruction that have come from the battlefields in the Middle East to the schoolrooms in this country. And our children attend militarized schools where they are treated not as students and not as children, but as enemy combatants. So you'll see a white policeman throw a black student down and put a chokehold on that black student that they've learned somewhere as they fought in another in a foreign country. We also see psychological warfare executed by black on black children. Psychological warfare and and means of intimidation and dehumanization that are forbidden by the Geneva Accords. For example, there have been at least eight incidents of young black children between the ages of five to eight years old being made to clean toilets that the teacher said they had stopped up 
being made to unstop toilets, rather, with their bare hands, toilets that were filled with urine and feces. That's against the rules of the Geneva Accords when you capture an enemy, yet these things are being done to our children. So that was the focus of the press conference the first day, laying out why do we call it a war on our children. The second day began with a march, a silent march, as Reverend Sue had envisioned. We, We were escorted down Pennsylvania Avenue in our red and black, and women carried in their hands small coffins made out of boxes that carried the scrolls that contained the names of 387 children who had been murdered, that we had documented, who had been murdered by the police from ages six years old all the way up to 21. We stopped at 21 years old. We, after we, 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 we landed at the Capitol where we had a rally, and then we broke up into small delegations and delivered those boxes with those 387 scrolls to Paul Ryan's office, the Speaker of the House, Chief Justice Roberts, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the President of the Black Caucus, Nancy Pelosi, and I'm, oh yes, and the Majority Whip. And to each of those people, we sent the message, stop the war on our children. And then we had a public hearing that was facilitated by our brother, Dr. Wilma Leon, where women came forward and offered testimony about the state-sanctioned murder and terrorism of their children. And we also had activists and scholars who came forward to talk to give us the analysis of the war on our children in public schools and in the streets of America. We video recorded these events, which we will distribute to anyone who would like to have a copy. Tell us about the response that you got as you delivered the symbols of coffins with the scrolls of 387 names of murdered children in this black children in this country. Well, one delegation actually talked with someone, I forget which office they talked with, but they actually talked with people and I don't know what kind of impact we had, but the Monday after we had been there, the Congressional Black Caucus issued a statement that they were going to have a a department that deals with the issues of black women and girls. Because one of the points that we made is that Stop the War on Our Children is an opportunity to build a grassroots movement of black women stepping back up to our historic roles as being the guardians and the protectors of black children as well as gatekeepers in our communities. 
And so we found that very interesting that this perhaps might have been one of the things that that came out of that 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 week in 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 the capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it was a very somber occasion. It was you can imagine you could hear nothing but the sound of our feet and we had a violin who played as we marched and that's the only sound you heard. And then when we got to the capital we call the names of those 387 children. You can imagine. And the mothers wept, and the grief was profound. But the determination to press forward was great, although they sometimes feel that they're not being heard. Well, Cheryl Blackenship was uh, publishing photos during the day and I kept checking um, on what was happening because it was very disturbing to me that I was unable to be there and when I saw the photo of the mourners and the protesters in front of the white hearse yes and saw the first small box the first small coffin and I knew the scroll was in it I I could help but not weep I wept for myself I wept for our children and and I, and I wept for these for the families of children who find it helpless and hopeless to try to protect their children from this. Um, so We're I can up imagine against ha- a monster yes. in the sense that the assaults have been well coordinated. Let me give you an example. When we speak of privatization of education, we think of it as something that perhaps began in the 1990s. But the truth of the matter is, before the ink was dry on Brown versus the Board of Education, Prince Edwards County, Virginia, closed all of its public schools rather than have white children go to school with black students and and created private academies where only white children could attend. And who do you think paid for those academies? Taxpayers, of course. And who were those taxpayers? Us. That's right. We paid for our own oppression. We white people have made us pay. Not only have we been oppressed, but they've made us pay for the oppression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there were 550,000 white children after Brown versus the Board of Education, B.J., that left public schools mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And, the explo- and, and the explosion of religious schools all over the country, Catholic school, private Catholic schools, uh, neighborhood schools. There was an explosion of Hebrew schools, at at the time 
uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And most people don't realize that Brown was not implemented for nearly 15 years after the court decision. Well, the other thing that I just want to share something with you. For example, if you look at North Carolina, from 1963 to 1973, the number of black principals in South Carolina went from 209 to only three. In the 1960s, 38,000 African-American teachers were fired in 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 17 southern states. Not only were teachers fired, thus interrupting the kind of intergenerational and cooperative relationships that had been central to the survival of, of the black community and the upbuilding of the black community and the the movement for our civil rights, this collective work, intergenerational collective work, was eviscerated by this intergenerational disconnect, fragmentation, that was a tool of white supremacy to maintain white supremacy and to make sure that black people would not be able to ever create, build up the kind of students that it did during the 60s who who basically brought to a standstill a system of white supremacy that had existed all the way back from enslavement. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the black school was a target site in response to the gains of the Southern Freedom Movement. And not, be, and not only did they fire teachers, they tore down most of the good high schools in the South that had mm-hmm. been born out of the blood, sweat, and tears of a people who said we will take out of the 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 attempt to give us plantation schools and we will enter into this collective project and we will build powerful schools. And we recognize that we don't have first book class books, but we're gonna build first class minds. Mm-hmm. And now, all on, of that was devastated absolutely. and forgotten. And 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 we and we're and we're seeing the remnants uh, for so many black students who lost the their footing uh, of community and of the uh, inspiration of role models in their community. Yeah. We're seeing we're seeing so much of the evidence of that. Yes, On we're Saturday, seeing so, when you and I say psychological warfare. Yes. Because in the segregated schools as you know, we participated and led clubs like the Future Teachers of America, 
the Student Library Association, the Student Council, the band, our newspapers, our annual staff. We were in leadership roles in our communities. We were paragraphs. We were whole pages. And we went from being paragraphs and whole pages to a minor footnote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where if I, you look at I, I, choirs, I will tell you. Yes, go ahead. I would tell you, Ruby, that I read one of your posts on Facebook today that brought up such wonderful memories for me <laughs> uh, in my segregated school uh, school system in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, there was not a day uh, as a kid in elementary school, junior high school, all the way up to the ninth grade before they extracted me and sent me to the tombs. But um, it was the band. It was the choir. It was being a, a school patrol. It was you knew the you knew the teachers from church and from community activities and at the Y, and there was mentoring going on. Uh, I was thinking about the band, and I don't know what my life would have been had I not had the kind of music training and the kind of experiences that I had as a member of uh, a band. I, 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 I look at my love of, of music, and I look at my love of uh, just being part of something important. Our bands were important. Um, uh, the support of the community in the music, the the choirs, and 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 our ch- and, and children after that period had none of that. None even though of I that. would, yeah. Even though I went on to uh, integrate a, a very large white high school filled with white children of privilege because it was Palm Beach High School. And most of those kids were very wealthy. Um, and the poor kids, the white kids who were poor, uh, they were invisible. Uh, and I was one black child in, in a school of over 900 and I played in the band, I played in the orchestra, I played piano for the choirs, but it was not the same because I knew it wasn't mine. In in my black school, it was mine. I owned it. I, and, and um, yes, we owned it. I was a cheerleader. And so black people would say, Give me that old Kava spirit. Give me that. <laughs> and, and white cheerleaders would say, S, P, U, totally out of rhythm with the culture. Exactly, exactly. We were made to become white cheerleaders. We I were made you, to leave behind our culture. I'll, I'll give you something that, that was a, a, a big deal when I, when I went to the white high school. They played Dixie oh. at the rallies, and I was in the band, and um, the NAACP and the, and the community leaders actually had a meeting to figure out whether I should play Dixie or not. 
with the band. So it turned out that when they played Dixie, um, I simply would um, leave at the at the pep rallies. I'd, I'd Do people know the, the words of Dixie B.J. today? I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times now, now I've forgotten. Look away, look away, yeah, look away, yeah. Dixie. Yeah, and in and the kids would go. The kids at these pep rallies would go crazy. Everybody was out of their seat when the band hit Dixie. Oh. Uh, and and my father's position was, you will not play Dixie even if you have to leave the band. That's just not going to happen. And you know, and I was young. I was like thirteen years old. I I could figure out what it what I couldn't think through what it was all about but I knew it was a big deal but uh, let's get back to uh your hands off our children weekend uh, on 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 Saturday when you had the public hearings and it was moderated by our friend uh Dr. Wilma Leon of Sirius uh radio inside the issues which broadcast on Saturdays uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, he's been on this program a number of times. Tell us about the public hearings. Who was there? What were the testimonies like? And what? how did the public respond? Well, there was Deanna Joseph and Andrew Joseph. Their son, Andrew jo- Joseph, was let out of a police car on a major highway in Florida, in Tampa, Florida, after the police had rounded up black kids at the local fair, at the fair that comes every year, took them to the police station under the guise of that they were gang members humiliated them, took them out on a highway and let them out of the car. And Andrew Joseph was killed by a drunken white driver. That's their story, but it leaves a lot of things to be filled in. Then Mrs. Johnson was there, Jackie Johnson, down in Valdosta, Georgia, She was there. Her son, Kenneth Johnson, is the young man who went to school and was found dead on a tennis, on a wrestling match. Wrestling match. Mm -hmm. And all of his organs missing. She was there. Another mother from Chicago whose son, Stefan, was autistic. The police came in the house that night because they had called for some help, not because he was violent, but because he was having difficulty. And whenever he had difficulty, they always called for help. And instead of uh, the ambulance coming, the police came, and within seconds of being in the house, they shot him dead in the presence of the father. So these were the kind of mothers 
and and relatives who were there. And people told those stories, and they were moving. They were devastating. And they carved out a pattern of persistent executions of young black children by the police. It made us realize that we're in a major crisis, and we have pledged to carry the fight further. Hopefully we'll end up at the Republican convention in Ohio, although people say we shouldn't go because people are going to be crazy there. I don't know. Let me ask you when you – were there members of the Black Congressional Caucus there? No, there were no members of the Black Congressional Caucus there, only community people. There were no congressional people there, whether they were with the Congressional Black Caucus or whether they were uh, local politicians. They were not present. Mm -hmm. Have you you gotten any follow-up from any of the congressional representatives that you delivered the coffins to? We've not gotten any follow-up. But I want to say something that I think we have to put this in context. There is a serious disconnect. Because even when we tell ordinary black people these things, something happens and they freeze up. Something happens that makes them unable or unwilling to face into what we're saying, just as it happened when we started in 2007 talking about state-sanctioned murders of black people. We would go around the country telling people this, and they would glaze over. And we're seeing the same response from black people. You can tell black people that they're making our children put their hands in toilets, fill with feces, and fill with urine. And there's no outrage of any, that makes any, there's no concrete outrage. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, something struck me from your last visit here, and again, I want to thank India Declare for for taking up the mic for me, on my behalf uh, the last time you were here to talk about going to this pro, uh, organizing this protest in public hearing, and you said, Ruby Nell Sales, you said, <laughs> you said. What kind of people are we that we don't love our children enough to protect them? Yes, and I'm also going to go out on a limb and say this. I've been following the presidential campaign, and this is what I have been very distressed about. Not only do we not speak up for our children, We have not demanded that presidential candidates speak up for our children. We have allowed the discourse to be set by them rather than our setting the discourse. We have fought with each other about the billionaires on Wall Street without being concerned 
about what's happening on our streets. We have allowed uh, people to talk about barriers without naming them as injustices. We have fought and cussed each other out and got more angry about someone's platform than we have about the lives and future of our children. There's something wrong with that. You know, I talked a we little about that last agendas. week. We have their agendas. I talked a little about that last week here at Our Common Ground, that we have at some point uh, really got to understand that as Dr. Ivor Carruthers reminds us all the time, that it's not what happens in the White House. It's what happens in our house. And I think that, and my comment last week was that we want to be part of something. We want to be part of a winning team. Well, um, there there's a distortion, uh, Dr. Sales, in how we understand what team we are on and what team we are willing to be on. It is very disconcerting that. And and it's not just uh, the the political uh, uh, race that's going on for 2016. It's everything. It's people are so excited, and I too am excited and, uh, we'll watch it about confirmation. People are excited that Empire series pre- premiered, came back, the new season is on. People are excited that NeNe Leakes is going to be back on um, Our Housewife in Atlanta or whatever. I, I, it's It's almost that the truth of our lives, Is is so much to bear that that is the the apple that we will not bite. We can be on the winning team. Our children present us with an opportunity to be on a winning team for their lives and for the life of the community. You can't separate those two issues from one another. The assault on the black children is not just a systemic assault designed to cripple, dehumanize, intimidate, and criminalize black children, but it's also designed to break the legs of the black community, to make sure that the community does not have a future, to make sure that the community cannot survive. So we must be on our own team. Let me tell you another thing that disturbs me profoundly. During the war on Iraq, I stood in the streets with Damu Smith in Washington, D.C. We organized against that absolutely barbaric war. And that was one of the, that was one of the last, and Damu Smith, who was, uh, who, for those of you who do not know, was a uh, an extraordinary activist in Was- out of Washington D.C. Damu, I uh, connected with way back in the 80s, and he 
was just uh, such an inspiration. He was very ill. He yes, was he dying. was very ill. When and he was although, but at the same time, I recognize that there was a war against black people going on in this country in the 90s. And I made an, I understood that the tactics that were being used in Iraq were tactics that were homegrown grown and exported to Iraq. I don't understand why we would allow someone to have us care more about Iraqi children than we do about our own. I fought for against the Iraqi war, but I'm deeply offended that we can talk about a war 16 years ago and, and, be, and be expected to jump up and down without dealing with the war on our children, the war on our community, the drug war here, the war on political prisoners in the 1970s, uh, on black activists in the 1970s, the war on public schools in this country, the implementation of charter schools to tear up public schools. Why, can, why are we expected to look back 16 years and be excited about what, and get upset about Iraq while not being at the same time upset about what has gone on in our community? Why are we not holding presidents accountable or senators or representatives accountable, not only for the war in Iraq, but for the war in this country that has been raging for almost 40 years? I can't get excited about that. That's a distraction. That's a manipulation. When they hung Saddam, Saddam Hussein in his tennis shoes, the first thing I wrote is, I've been there before, that's a lynching. What they did to Saddam Hussein is what they've done to black people. Tell me what manner of people would, would let someone manipulate them about a war away in another country and not even speak one word about the war on their children. Well, We've got to create know, the agenda. One of the reasons that I ask you, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Ruby, about whether or not you had gotten follow-up is that it is, it is has been inherently clear to me and to most of my listeners uh, that we are not extracting accountability from the people who we obviously support because we keep voting for them. We keep putting them back in there. And we keep and working for them. We're not just, BJ, we're not just supporting the Black Caucus. We pay taxes in this country. Elective officials should represent us as much as they represent the interests of white people. So we must hold the Black Caucus accountable. But why do we put our hearts in campaigns that have nothing to do with the issues on our agenda? If you're going to talk about corrupt banks, then tell how Wells Fargo took black people's homes with these uh Predatory mortgages. Predatory yes. loans. And that Atlanta was one of the major cities that lost over $50 million in those schemes. If you're going to talk about it, then be clear about it. But why mm -hmm. do we hate ourselves so much that we demand nothing? 
Well, I, 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 I think, Ruby, you know, each time you come and visit with us here, you're raising these questions. And, and I think that we don't talk enough with each other about that. For instance, the way in which public education is being marginalized by the educational industrial complex in every, every place in this country. The fact that uh, we have Trayvon Martin, Michael yes. Brown, Tamir Rice, John Carrington, and Sandra Bland, and and, and it's like and, and 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 I just want to even throw in there, uh, bring back our girls. Yes, Boko Haram has killed more. Africans than has ISIS in Europe. Yes. Like three to four hundred times more. And our foreign policy doesn't seem to prioritize this little group of uh, hoodlums running around killing African people. But I don't want to digress. But I do want to elicit perhaps some people in our audience have a clue. Our number is 347-838-9852. We are on the air live with Dr. Ruby Sales talking about hands off our children and how we protect our children in this country and who is responsible and what is the infrastructure and the mechanisms under which we're going to do that. For instance, we are allowing state-sanctioned murderers to get away, even when they are charged, even when they are indicted. They are not going to jail like other murderers. Last week, or this week, there was a report of a teacher beating the hell out of a kid with a book on his head in Texas. She was arrested and released. And what was she calling him as she beat him? Asshole. Thank you. We are not, we are not, are we paying attention, Ruby, to the extent that we recognize the the power and authority that we do have. You know, I'm one of those people uh, that I believe that you act. When something happens recently, uh, it was found out we a parent informed my daughter that a coach last year, who is no longer his coach, an old coach, had been bullying my grandson. Oh. And we weren't going to sit around and let that happen. Oh, hell no, not to the naw. And she wrote an open letter to parents of the team and the team network that sponsors the team in this community because essentially what he 
what this coach was doing. He was bullying the black boys to make to because they weren't because they weren't doing what he and 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 ignoring the white team members. And this is was a young team. These kids were like between eleven and thirteen. She had it published in the local newspaper. This oh, and she called his name. And she called for sanctions for him to be fired and for him to be charged for bullying in sports. We cannot we cannot let one thing pass. Not one thing. In the case of Tamir Rice, the police lied. They covered up, but they are not in prison. And my question is, why not? And there are 387 and still counting Tamir Rice's, whom the police have killed, shot in their backs, shot more than 15 or 20 times. Right. And and your question is, who are we as a people to allow it? There should there should not be any candidate at the city council level, at the state house, and the and the Congress and the White House that should not have to answer to every three hundred and eighty seven one of those. And the other thing that we must ask the question, we've got some serious issues on the table. Black kids, children in public schools are four times more likely to be beaten, pummeled by white teachers than any other students in public schools. Do you understand that little black kids in Head Start are being taken out of their classrooms in handcuffs and ankle chains and taken to the jails, local jails, and put in jail with hardened criminals? And what has been their crime? Childish behavior. The criminalization of normal childish behavior. Black boy in Louisiana put in jail because he threw skittles across the classroom. Black kid put in jail. The Southern Poverty Law Center has documented all of these violations and criminalizations, put in jail for talking back to the teacher. Our children's styles are criminalized. We, I just posted a, a video of a young black girl whom the police assaulted because she had on a headband. Mm-hmm. You know, and the criminalization we, we, of black styles, the criminalization of youth, 
Our children are up against vicious assault. Now, what does it mean when a people, I just can't get over it. I have to tell you, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but something in me is repulsed by someone who invites me to have compassion for other people's children and not my own, never bothers to mention my children. I'm repulsed by that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're not and taking And people say, oh, you're Ruby. so hard on Bernie Sanders. Oh, you're so... No, I'm hard on... Uh, what I'm doing is saying, look, I'm neither Hillary nor Bernie has talked about the extent to which black children are being violated in this country, and we've not demanded from any candidate that level of accountability. Instead, we have killed each other over their agendas, and we've not stood up for our children. And when I had a conversation with Black Lives Matter young people, I must tell you this story. John Lewis me and a couple more SNCC activists had a conversation with Black Lives Matters activists and basically somewhere in the conversation I said to them I want to just say to you that I'm sorry We let you down. We abandoned you. We sent you into these hot spots, into these war zones to defend yourselves without any war gear on. And when you were not compliant, we fussed at you without realizing that your noncompliance was healthy that you were refusing to be broken and bent by the oppression and the humiliation and the degradation. So the noncompliance, I'm glad you were noncompliant. I'm sorry that we didn't get it. Anybody who attended that event can tell you that you could hear a pin drop when I said that. People actually had tears in their eyes. And when it was over, they all came to me. And they were so happy that I had said that on behalf of our generation. And all on Facebook the next day, they talked about that moment. We must own up to what we've done to our children in the name of fitting in in this society. Look at what happened to little Ruby Bridges when she integrated the schools in New Orleans. What did it mean for a six-year-old girl to sit in a classroom in a circle in the middle of this floor and be isolated and nobody would sit by her, so they put her in the middle of the floor? Nobody would talk with her. Nobody would eat with her, and some of the teachers wouldn't even teach her. Do you understand what that does to a kid's psyche? That's right. You know, Ruby, last week we talked about the excessive suspension rates contributing to the uh, school-to-prison pipeline and that 
<clears throat> many of these um, schools are violating the civil rights of students. But one of the things that I want to highlight is that we have to be concerned with our children no matter where they are, whether they are in school, not in school, whether they are poor, whether they are middle class, however and wherever they are. We failed some generations of students, and as a result, um, some schools have suspended 25% of their entire enrolled student body, uh, black student body, at least once. Yes. Um, I read uh, I read a statistic that said that at 484 charter schools, the suspension rate for students with disabilities was 20% uh, point, 20% points higher than those without disabilities. That nearly half of all the black secondary students attended one of the 270 schools that was being studied was hyper segregated, meaning at least 80% of the student body was black and where the aggregate black suspension rate was 25%. And we need to talk more, and I'm so glad uh, and hope that you recorded that intergenerational um, conversation. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. And Dr. Ruby Sales has joined us tonight to talk about Hands Off Our Children. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk with her about loneliness. Uh, I also want to talk to um, uh, to you about your own testimony of the ch- of the pain in which the children in your community are experiencing, and I want to talk to you about the warmth of other suns. We'll oh. be right back. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. Monday, 
April 18th at 9 p.m. We'll be featuring uh, Sir Hillary Beckles. Um, <clears throat> Sir Hillary Beckles is one of the re uh, Caribbean region's most distinguished academics and perhaps the Caribbean's most prominent public intellectual. And he gives a riveting report, historical view, and lecture on the issue of, repar of reparations for the Caribbean, and we hope that you will join us. That's Power Views at 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network, and we hope that you'll join us. You can learn more about it at our TruthWorks Facebook page. God is not going to put it in your lap. Oh. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The I Declare Show. Real. Raw. Right now. Tuesdays, 9 p.m., the I Declare show. With India Declare, she brings it real, raw, and right now. The home of real, raw, right now, talk media, and indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I Declare, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare show. To be safe to white people is that black people are inherently criminal. We come from a criminal culture, and we pose a clear and present danger to the social order and to the security of white people. And so they have permission. All alone, fighting on our own. Turn. 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 Turn.
life because I was free for my life. And I hear by the first car that I saw, my friend kept running. And he told me to keep running because he feared for me too. So as he was running, the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car. Thank you for being with us tonight. This is our common ground. Sanctuary. Black truth finds its place where resistance is treasured. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. And we thank you for being with us here at the Sanctuary for Black Truth, our common ground. We're here every Saturday evening at 10 p.m., and we hope that you will become a regular. We've got lots of people listening on their cell phones tonight or their home phones tonight, and we've got uh, our wonderful regulars uh, in our chat room, and we thank them for being with us and our guests and newcomers to our common ground. Uh, Ruby Sales, Dr. Ruby Nell Sales is our guest tonight, and we've been talking about Hands Off Our Children, 300 Strong. But one of the things, Ruby, I want to talk about is how do we make that 3 million strong? Well, nothing has changed. It starts from the bottom up from neighborhood to neighborhood, door to door, organization to organization, and building up a movement does not happen overnight, and neither does it happen on social media, and neither does it happen by having constant actions in the street where you're not bringing the community along with you. This is hard, brick by, it's the foundation and then laying the bricks. You must have a foundation. The community is the foundation, not a leader, not a person, not an individual, but the community is the foundation. It is upon that foundation that we construct a movement. It is not about superstars. It's not about publicity. It's about building up the community from the foundation up to the rooftop. That's how we do it. There is no easy way of doing it. You can't build well, a movement in three months. The Southern Freedom Movement started in the 50s. Actually, it started in the 40s with the Southern Negro Youth Council and went all the way up into the early 70s. It doesn't happen overnight. No, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and I think that one of the things that we have gotten ourselves um, chained by is the notion that we want it tomorrow. We want it immediately. That we want things over life. And by that, I mean that we want to have our houses and our cars and our uh, Prada bags, and we want to have 
vacations on Martha's Vineyard just to see what it's like where the president goes. We want all of these things, and we work for those things while our children languish in jails, in prisons, in environments in their schools where they cannot thrive, where they cannot dream, where they cannot catch the magic. And I find that just unacceptable, uh, intolerable, Ruby, that uh, we just have pockets of activism rather than communities that act. Right. And I don't and I don't do a lot of talking about this until you come on this program and then we get into this and then everybody's all depressed and sending me email about how depressed they are. But I think that there are some some clues. And I ran into an article, Ruby, that I want to share with you uh, of on the Guardian. It was written by um Hell, I don't know who it was written by, but oh, oh, oh George Monbiot. Uh, I think he's a French writer. Uh, and the, the the title of the piece is The Age of Loneliness is Killing Us. And I found it very profound. One of the things that he says is that social isolation is as potent a cause of early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is twice as deadly as obesity. And he goes on to say that Ebola is unlikely ever to kill as many people as this disease strikes down. Social isolation is a potent cause of early death. And I'm wondering if the fissure, the fracturing of our communities, both physical as well as cultural connection, is killing us. And and as we are being as we are dying, so are our children. Loneliness is a manifestation of fragmentation and being out of community and in relationships. When you start using those words, you're not just talking about a social disease. You're talking about a spiritual disease because the ultimate statement of spirituality is not the individual in relationship to the individual but it's in the individual in community. Community is the highest and most evolutionary stage of human existence. Individualism is the lowest stage because individualism implies a disconnect, implies a self-centeredness, implies a narcissism where one goes for oneself. It is in community that we even come to know the meaning of God. Because if we are involved in right relations in community, 
then we are letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a steady stream. He's absolutely right. We are in an age of fragmentation, disposability, and extreme spiritual devolution. And I think that it manifests itself in different ways in different communities. I read in Middlesex County, 17 people had died of heroin overdose in one month. I also read that more white women are dying in their 40s than any other people in this country. When you have been told as a people that your ultimate essence is individualism and even white supremacy is a kind of group in a group group individualized where the group operates disconnected from the rest of the world. So it imposes the theory of individualism on the dynamics of a group. And so it means that I'm going to get to black people, but I want to say that the great white secret is that white people promise white people the world under the rubric of whiteness and give them the small space of containment and whiteness. So I think that when you've been told that the very essence of who you are is whiteness, and suddenly the things that meant whiteness do not exist for you to have access to anymore, and only a small people group of people experience the benefits of whiteness, and if you think that is your soul, you are in spiritual crisis because you feel as if a death, you enter into a death stage of, of, of where you're suicidal, where you, where you absolutely do not have a life force in your mind because your life force has been white supremacy. Now, when it comes to black folk, our essence was in community, our connections. We were not a lonely people. We were a deeply connected people. And we did not allow ourselves to be assaulted on the inside. We kept our spirits pretty much intact. Our communities were physically assaulted, but our spirits held together. And when we allowed through integration, there was nothing wrong with democratization. The problem was when you say that I'm going to engage in a melting pot theory, a reality, then what you're saying is that you're decimating your spirit to take on someone else's spirit, to let someone else's spirit inhabit you. So that is a kind of death. And so we are seeing, and, and this has been exacerbated, when our very life force was in relationships, you know how much in relation we valued relationships in the black community, whether it was at parties, whether it was at church, 
whether it was at school, whether it was in the band, everywhere we went, we valued relationships and we did not suffer from collective loneliness as we do today. So I would agree with the author that we are in a very, but it's it's really, we are dispirited. We have allowed ourselves to be disconnected from our roots, which is each other. And we might know, and it's complicated by a new way of knowing that is artificially constructed where they say that we can know each other on Facebook. We can know each other on Twitter. The artificiality of knowing. Living in a... Ver- History no longer is what we make together. History is what we construct together. What we yes. imagine together. We are cut well, off from each other. Well, when I read this article, one of the things that that it took me back to uh, the Our Common Ground book selection for uh, February of January of this year was The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which is just a wonderful thing. And one of the things that she writes in the book, and I want to share this with you, um... She writes, just to leave, the migrants had to draw upon their inner reserves, transcend the limits of caste and geography and the station which they had been assigned. The beneficiaries, despite the casualties, were many. The migrants would seem to be prime beneficiaries of their actions, but they were the ones who had to face the unsettled in-betweenness of their immigrant status. Their individual actions added together benefited their children, their grandchildren, and even those they left behind in the South as much as, if not more, than themselves. The migration helped other people of color. The latter arrivals from Asia South and Central America and the Middle East, whose worlds opened up further as the country liberalized its views of diversity. The migration exposed white Americans outside the South to black culture and created an opportunity, much of it missed, to bridge the races in the New World. The migration changed American culture as we know it. The migrants brought the blues and birthed the whole genres of music, jazz, rock, rhythm, and blues, hip-hop. The migration would influence the language, food, dance, and dress we take for granted. Regardless of their formal education, those who persevered in the New World on the whole enjoyed greater economic success than they would have otherwise. Black migrants who left the South and did not return, had higher incomes than those who never left or those who returned. In their own lives, whatever individual success each migrant found was in part a function of how he or she adapted to the new world and made peace or not 
with the old. What? That's such a beautiful passage. Let me stop and say that. And one cannot deny that migration stretched the rigid boundaries of a northern white European American Senate culture. One cannot deny that those migratory sites, sites of migration, were so significant that New York City would never be the same. Whether you're talking about the Harlem Renaissance, whether you're talking about the Black Arts Movement, Imam Baraka coming out of Newark, New Jersey, whether you're talking about the rise of Pan-Africanism, one cannot deny the impact that black migration had on the whiteness in the North, Midwest, and the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know the reason time, I bring this. Okay, go ahead. The re- the reason I bring this up is because even though the Great Migration of blacks from the South into the North and um, into the Midwest um, ended somewhere around the 1960s. 60s, yes. We have to understand that, you know, the Chicago Defender wrote um, right after World War II, if all of their dreams does not come true, enough will come to pass to justify their actions. But I reflected that we have come since since the 1990s into a new kind of migration. And we have to understand that... In that migration, we cannot leave us behind. You know, my mother always said, uh, so you want to go, you want to be over there. You realize <laughs> when you go over there, there is here because you never leave yourself. And and I think that many black parents who left the South got a lot by what leaving, by leaving, but their children had a chance to grow up outside of the full essence of Jim Crow and be their fuller selves. I mean, when you look at it. But it, how can it, it, you say that when James Baldwin writes about the fire next time? How can you say that when tracking emerged in the north where black kids were confined to vocational schools and that in the culture emerged the exceptional Negro where only a few black kids got a chance to go to even colleges or even to go to quote-unquote good high schools. That's the whole essence of the literature that comes out of the North, the man who cried I am, Gwendolyn Brooks Brunsville. How can you say that? Well, I'm not saying... That I, I am saying that in this new migration, we cannot think that it is different. 
That's what I'm saying. I'm saying as we move as a people, as we begin to this fracture, this physical fracture of moving away from each other and being so fragmentized that we lose that we lose the sense of community we have to go back and learn the lessons of the great migration because uh, for instance in Washington DC during the great migration the people from um Alabama had an Alabama club they all did not they all decided that they wanted to be with others to support each other in the migratory process i'm i'm, but I'm not the saying other it was the side of that vj and this is what we have to look at it and see what we did right and what we could and have what done we did wrong and it, one it, of exactly. the things that we did not we told our children all of the horrors of jim crow but we didn't tell them the victories of what black people had carved out of the arid soil of segregation. Well, so I when think the that... children of the parents thought about the South, they thought about it as a backward community. They didn't understand that black people had built educational institutions while European peasants were still in serfdom. Well, one of the reasons that this book is so important uh Ruby is because it puts it it puts that in its historical context and it contextualizes it in one way and that is that um <clears throat> that is that black people never were able to escape unless in their own communities, no matter where they were set up. You know, because we're talking about children, people, uh, uh, would, and, and, and what I like about the book is that she has chosen people that she um, interviewed who look back and who don't have who have an appreciation for the good and the bad of the decisions to to migrate. I guess and what we, I, I guess what bothers me a little bit about I love the book. Let me just say that. Let me be transparent. But I do have some ticklish areas. One of the things that bothered me <laughs> is that my, black folks have always been in a situation, for whatever reasons, the black family had to split. Black relationships had to be broken. Enslavement fed on the breaking up of black families. Migration, although it had good benefits, the downside was that it created in us a fragmentation yes. and, and a separation from the roots. And the that's what I'm that, saying that we have to learn from in this new in, in this yes, new way. Yes, I agree in with which, you. Yeah. And the other and thing I think that, that bothers me, we lost 30 million acres of land. We just yes. walked away and lost whole communities of houses and land that our 
mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers had paid for with the sweat of their brow. We walked away from those from from the land and from the houses and from the sweat. We did that and never looked yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Uh we've got a caller, uh, Ruby, uh, who wants to get in on this discussion. Six four six I'm bringing you on the air right now. Thank you for your call. 646, you've got to turn down your radio. Make sure we have a reason to do a third one. And the reason is, you know, are you on a speakerphone? I don't care about the barbershop. And, uh, you know, he's trying to keep the sun out the street. You've got to get off the speakerphone, otherwise we're not hearing you. Many communities, not just the black community, but every community, you know, they try to keep their kids on the right path. So I just felt like that was a great hook for this movie, and it's so relevant. Virginia, I think a lot of folks will be very surprised watching this film uh, to see dealing with the violence in Chicago head off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know who that is. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Oh, uh, I think one of the things is that 646 is playing something that he recorded, and it's not working. And um, um, he got involved in in doing that rather than talking to us. But, Ruby, one of the things that I bring this up about, this whole fracturing and fragmentation uh, is that you mentioned something to me this week that was kind of disturbing that I'm not seeing up here in the I know what part you're of the plantation. I know your mind. I know exactly what. <laughs> and I want to go back to that because I, I'm, I'm trying to see it, and I've, I've, you know, since I talked to you, it's just been rolling around in my head, and that is that your thought that in this electoral season for I the presidential <laughs> election that black people in the South are being badgered. Talk, well, talk I mean, more it's, about a subtle, that. it's called dog whistle politics where you use coded racial language to drive home a racist point. Let me give you an example, and this is really a schism that is developing between northern blacks and southern blacks that has been developing over many years that's come home to roost in this election. Let me give you an example. Let me, first of all, answer your question more clear, clear, clearly. The other night, as I listened to the debate, the pundit said it, Sanders said it. He said that, yes, we've won the eight last eight elections, I mean, uh, uh, caucuses. And, 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 we're, and Hillary has only won the South. That, and you keep hearing that over and over again, only as if black people in the South are only that was a signal to say that that she's only won the black vote. It was a 
manipulation of the reality that she won Illinois, Ohio, Texas, Missouri, states other than the South. But the point was to devalue, to say only the South was really was coded language to say she only won. It was a way of diminishing the black vote and diminishing the significance of the black vote because the South is where the largest amount of black voters reside. That was called dog whistle politics. Anybody who listened to that, who had any ounce of astuteness, understood that the message was the black vote and it was a way of demeaning black people. Now, this is the source of the schism. One of the reasons why Marxism could not take hold in the South, beyond the religious question, is that black people had a hard time talking about an economic system that didn't include race. Because our life was so obviously defined in very tangible and everyday ways by racism. We understood from the very entrance of our lives that race was a defining factor in every aspect of our lives. So when you promote an analysis in the South that leaves out race, black folks ain't buying that. We did not have an intimate relationship with Northern progressive white intellectuals in the same way that Northern black people have had those relationships. Our, the, the whole differences, although we share a common reality of being black, there are some regional differences that have been very significant in how we see and move in the world. And what I'm really saying is that there has developed two different types of black people. And I think it's very interesting that where the locus of the conflict comes about and it's over race. For example, when you were talking about poverty tonight, my southern self kicked in. And I said, yes, there are many people who are poor, but poverty takes on a different complexion with black people. The poor white kids are not confined to public schools or militarized environments in the same way that black poor kids are. Poverty is not an equal landscape. When there is white supremacy and racism, you have to tell the color of money, and it's white. And so I think that in this election, one of the things that black people couldn't buy with the Sanders campaign is that he didn't say that the 1% billionaires are white and that they are the ones who funded ELEC, and they are the ones who have created and funded all of the assaults on our constitutional rights. They created the charter school movement. 
They have privatized education. They have funded the uh, prison corporations of America. None of that gets talked about, whereas it appears that because of the progressive move roots in the North, that black people are more comfortable ignoring the fact that race is not being discussed in the campaign. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, it's because race is such a prevalent reality on a very visible level in the South that things are black or white and very few shades of gray. We don't have de facto segregation. We didn't grow up on the de facto. We grew up on the real, right in your face, colored water fountains. So we're hard put to buy someone who says that it's revolutionary not to talk about race. That feels like the same old thing with a different game. Yes. And that's the schism that's existing. It's, it, uh, paradoxically, the schism comes from where will race be in the conversation? There, there, there seems to be no place. Um, none of the issues, the economic issues the issues of education, about education, the issues about government in general, the issues about, I mean, they're not talking about how we are going to be governed. They're not talking about issues of public policy, how to fix that which is broken on, uh, for black people. They're not talking about those things. My brother said something today that is so true, and people might not like it. But both sides of the conversation on the right and left are about white people wanting something for nothing simply because they're white in the way that they've been accustomed to getting it. And resenting Bingo. anybody and resenting anybody else who has access to it. Period. Yeah. So Ruby, let me ask you a question. If you were president of the world, where would you start? First of all, I would start with a public conversation in the over office, calling the nation to truth, outlining to the nation what this country's history has been about, how its genocide of Native peoples. Do you know that Native Americans could not vote in this country until the 1950s? in a country yes, that I belonged that. to them. So I would start out with the simple act of truth-telling and to say that we, have, we might aspire to be a democracy, but we lean towards fascism when only one voice is heard and recognized. 
So I would start with that. And then I would begin, I would also call together all of the organizations who are working on the ground and begin to develop. I wouldn't go to Congress first. I would begin to have a conversation and begin to develop an action plan that addressed the conversation that I had had previously. I would create a new mandate, and I would say to those white people who are disaffected that you've got a role to play in this. Come, let us build for the first time in this country a nation that was talked about but has not yet been born, and to tell them that they too have a role to play. And instead of seeing themselves over and against other people, imagine themselves at their greatest, at their highest potential by participating as part of a team. I would try to involve them. I would try to change their identity away from whiteness to community. That's what I would do. You can't begin to, you can't just go in and change the system when there hasn't been any groundwork. Mm-hmm. When you have told yourself, white people grow up with the fundamental belief that they're decent, kind, and honest people who are gentle people. So you've got to shatter that illusion. Someone wrote on Facebook today and got very angry when I challenged it. She said every low-down thing that this country stands for is best seen in their alliance with Israel. While I agree that America's alliance with Israel represents some of the most insidious aspects of America is not the most low-down things that we've ever seen. Colfax, Louisiana is one of them where an entire town of black people were burned. Rosewood, mm-hmm. Memphis, Tulsa. Tennessee, where a whole section was, was, was eviscerated by white vigilantes at the turn of the 20th century. This is a white person who has to go all the way to Israel to talk about the most low-down thing that this country has done. Because she doesn't, it's not that she's a bad person, she doesn't know that history. Mm -hmm. Because the history is comprised of lies. So how do you build up a new society on the backs of historical lies? And and I, I you know, they're they're just. I think people get so overwhelmed, and they get overwhelmed in a puddle of the absence of understanding the history and how we have struggled through so much of the horrid events 
of the terror. And unless you understand what happened and how we got through it, you really can't see. You really cannot see how we move forward. And And what I would say, you have put your hands on the heartbeat of the message. And it is a message of hope connected with history. Out of the history of our forced journey into America comes hope. Let me tell you why you just said it. We were not meant to survive. All kinds of atrocities have been committed against us. And we are still standing. Bent, but still on our feet. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Still well, Ruby standing. Ruby Nail sales, it is always such an uplifting experience to have you come to our common ground and uh, one of the things that I'm hoping that uh, we can get our hands on is to do a special on the public hearings that you held for hands off our children and the war against our children and also this last weekend's intergenerational conversation so that we can run it as a special here at Our Common Ground. For those of you who are listening and you would like to support the work of the Spirit Project, the Spirit House Project, Ruby is going to tell you how you're able to donate through their PayPal uh, account. First of all, We appreciate and thank you for any donations. It's really important that we understand that if we don't support ourselves, no one will. You can show your support by going to www.thespirithouseproject.org, www.spirithouseproject.org, and hit the Donate button. Yeah, there's a button on the on the website, spirithouseproject.org, and Donate right on and the go to home PayPal. page. Right, we'll take you. And we are five hundred one c three, and your donations are tax deductible. Well, we look forward to having you come back, uh, Ruby. We also look forward to hosting uh, the Spirit House Project. Uh, on TruthWorks Network uh, when we get that together because I think that there are a lot of things uh, that you are doing that need to inform what is happening in this country relative to public policy, relative to electoral politics and this election. So I thank you so very much for the work that you did. May I just say something before we leave? I just want to say to everybody under the sound of our voices. I hope that I leave you with hope and a new energy to move from the sidelines 
to the center of participatory democracy and be excited that you've got an opportunity to birth a nation that is yet to be born, that this is a moment of grace and this is a moment to live into your fullest capacity as human beings and as world citizens. Do not despair. Keep your eyes on the prize and work on. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you so very much for those um, very wise words and myths and message. And we love you at our common ground. And I love you too. And thank you so much. I appreciate so much the opportunity. That was Dr. Ruby Nell Sales of the Executive Director of the Spirit House Project. She led 300 strong to Washington, D.C., protesting and holding a tribunal hearing on the killing and abuse of black children in this country, and we thank her for her work there. We thank you for being with us here tonight. We're going to get ready to get out of here. One of the things I do want to say there's breaking news, Reverend uh, William Barber, uh, who was traveling today on one of the major airlines, was, he is the president of the North Carolina NAACP, and in his statement he said that he was confronted by a man on a plane who was saying distasteful and disparaging things to him which he protested, and he was removed from the flight to the uh, Raleigh-Durham airport, um, at the Raleigh-Durham airport. You should check that out. The, the news report is on our Facebook page, and um, that's very disturbing. I also want to, going out tonight, to announce to you a very sad thing that has happened in the world of Black Talk Radio, and that is that Chicago has lost a very important voice. Um, Doug Banks, one of our most iconic radio voices, gifted innovator of urban radio, passed at the age of 57. With the passing of Doug Banks, Chicago has lost one of its most important radio voices. And I knew Doug, and uh, we are very saddened and send our condolences to his family. And this is for him going out tonight. See you next week at Our Common Ground, 10 p.m. Make sure you like us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
my 